The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Wonderful to welcome my co-hosts as well, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great discussion ahead. Elliot, over to you. Great. Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. So today, what I'd like to talk about, I think it's an outgrowth of our meta conversation in some ways and an outgrowth of a podcast we did maybe it was even almost a year ago now, about how challenging it's been to forecast as management in this environment. But I want to address two questions that I view as related. What do you do as an investor when you like the business but don't like what management is doing? And I mean that both in terms of a business that you might be working on where you're like, hey, I like this a lot. I'm intrigued to invest, but ooh, what are these guys doing? And I also mean that in terms of a position you have where you think you have something pretty good. You may have been holding on, holding on to it for a while, but ooh, you really don't like what management's doing at the moment. And then the second related question is how sensitive should management's strategy and tac- tactics be to changing dynamics in the stock market? So we talked about this in Meta in particular, investing through a downturn is what we all want in theory. Um, But it's very hard to know whether to trust what management's doing in actuality without seeing the same panels they're seeing, without seeing the evidence that it's actually going to work. And critically, I think communication is one of the only ways to address that for management seats. But far too often, um, it's not necessarily a management's interest to communicate fully, um, nor do management teams tend to do that, I think, anyway. Uh, It's hard to put things out there that hold you accountable. Um, And I definitely have an affinity for those that that do, that are far more candid uh, in such an approach. And then, you know, one of the bigger questions a lot of companies are facing right now is how much do you defend margin versus defending your share of business right now? especially when you're internally financed and you don't have to rely on capital markets. So do you do you actually defend margin or do you actually go make sure you maintain your piece of business? And then should some companies stuck with too much inventory? Should those companies be liquidating inventory quickly? We saw Target and Walmart act pretty forcefully. Or should some of these companies be sitting on that inventory, wait for a more sanguine environment, and then at that time, you know, more gradually scale out of their too much inventory problem? One story to maybe set the stage, I've been reading the book Chip War, which I'd strongly recommend. Great history of the semiconductor sector and its geopolitical significance. 
Um, but one of the parts I found really interesting, and I only vaguely remembered it, but you know, really, uh, I think speaks a lot. Um, Taiwan Semi was founded by Morris Chang. He had been the CEO for a long time, uh, right in the beginning of the financial crisis. Uh, he had retired and appointed his own successor, Rick Tsai. And um, heading into the financial crisis, Tsai actually um, cut headcount and he curtailed CapEx significantly. And Morris Chang was sitting on the sidelines and he was like, wait a second, this is a terrible idea. He fired Tsai, took the CEO chair back, uh, position, not chair, took, took the CEO position back. On the first conversation he had with investors following uh, that move, he announced that he'd be rehiring every single laid off employee and he would be commencing a massive CapEx investment plan. And immediately the stock tanked. Now, with the benefit of hindsight today, Morris Chang was a freaking genius. And he did exactly what he should have done. He was completely transparent and totally candid with Wall Street. Yet, um, you know, the immediate reaction was terrible for the stock. Um, so how are we as investors supposed to sit here and, you know, not only grapple with some of these questions ourselves, like, is that the right or wrong thing to do? But to see a stock go down when that happens and say, oh, my God, are we right or wrong here? So I have some thoughts on all these questions, but I wanted to tee it up and I'll kick uh, the these uh, questions out to you guys and then we'll we'll keep going around. Yeah, this is a great question. I got uh, I got very interested and excited when you brought this up as a as a topic idea because I've thought about this a lot before and I should have thought of this as a as a good topic for discussion. So because I come across this quite a bit and I can think about uh, let's see two of the three biggest holdings I have right now are in companies where I absolutely love where the business is positioned. I love you know, pretty much everything about the business itself. And I happen to like almost everything about management, except both management teams have done things over the years that were really suboptimal when it comes to capital allocation. And we've had plenty of discussions about that. And again, it still boggles the mind that you can be such a successful executive and be in a position in such a catbird seat of having this great business at your disposal. And yet you can't construct a rational dividend policy <laughs> or, you know, in one case, the CEO is really exceptional in thinking about how and when to use share repurchases as an investment opportunity, as, a, as an investment vehicle uh, for the cash and capital that the, that the company's generating. But then he he said to me once that, you know, he, he'd like to eventually establish a dividend because it'll attract a broader and different and better set of shareholders. And I just, you know, want to fall out of my chair and and it's just really frustrating, right? So uh, I, I guess as I go down the line here, the, the thought that I keep coming back to is that good businesses are really rare. So if you like what's going on with the business, that's got to be thought number one. And you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Because if you're rational and honest about it, you have to realize that most businesses will not be better businesses in three or five years. The vast majority of businesses 
you know, 90, 95%, probably more of, of good sized businesses, they might still be great businesses, but they're not going to be better businesses in three years or five years. And so when you find a great business and you can stomach the price, you really have to load up and be willing to, to stomach some things that are less than perfect because no business is perfect. I mean, we can all talk about our favorite businesses and the best businessmen that are out there, but let's be honest, nobody's perfect. And so you have to be willing to stomach some things that where you don't like what management's doing. You also have to assume, or at least I always assume that all businesses are going to be run by an idiot at some point. That's Buffett's famous line of, as usual, you know, he's thought through these things and had more more experience than the rest of us and had better thoughts about it. And, and he's 100% correct. So if you, if you go into it with that attitude that nothing's perfect, good businesses are rare, all businesses are going to run into bad management sooner or later, I think it helps set your expectations and frame where you should start the debate and the decision. So then the question becomes, where do I draw the line? And I've decided that based on what I just described, I'm going to have to bite my tongue in cases where there's suboptimal capital allocation, where a management team insists on paying a dividend, even though it makes absolutely no sense, where a management team insists on doing a steady drip, 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 little baby buyback, even though they should be loading up the truck once every three years or five years or 10 years when they get an amazing opportunity and then sitting tight the rest of the time. I'm going to have to bite my tongue when they do things around the edges, you know, strategy related decisions and tactics that I don't necessarily agree with, but, you know, reasonable people can disagree on that for sure. You know, here and there, if there are things about the balance sheet, um, you know, you, you have to be aware of the fact that incentives are going to rule the world in a lot of cases. And, you know, what you may want to see may not line up with what's going to get the executive team paid more that kind of stuff like that. It's just human nature. It's all stuff you're going to have to deal with where I'm not okay with it and where I do draw a hard line. And I think a much, much harder line than a lot of other people would is around any sort of ethical gray areas. That could be, uh, I guess it's it's fine now to, to talk about it at this point, but I'll never forget, you know, there were, there were about a million things I didn't understand about Valiant. And I'm not here to criticize all the people that owned it because God knows it was like the greatest shareholder base in the history of mankind. Like you want to talk about creating quality shareholder base like that. That was about as good as it gets, which blew my mind because in like the first five minutes, I found out that Mike Pearson had multiple DUIs leaving the office, you know, multiple affairs within the company, likely a drug problem, like all sorts of other stuff going on where it's just like, this is not anywhere near where I'd be comfortable partnering with this person. Like, I, If I owned the whole company, I would not have this person as the CEO and it wouldn't be close, right? It wouldn't be a tough decision. Any sort of conflict of interest, any sort of related party transactions that make you uncomfortable, anything in the proxy statement, which again, I realize most people don't even read, which is where this kind of gets interesting. I, I just, it's a hard no for me. Like I, I'm just not going to go anywhere near it. Uh, likewise, a reckless balance sheet. A lot of people will just kind of overdose on what starts out as a good idea and say, you know, if a little bit of debt is more efficient then a lot of debt's going to be super efficient, that kind of thinking that can really get you into trouble. Likewise, you know, we've done four good acquisitions. So this fifth monster acquisition has to be good, right? That, that kind of thinking can really screw things up. I, it, this boils down to, to basically massive ego and you know, just subpar thinking, really irrational, crazy stuff that's 
that's a problem, but it gets normalized, right? I mean, as we talked about last week, like behavior at FTX that would never, ever pass muster if you and your brother were running a car wash or a restaurant was somehow completely okay at a $32 billion venture-backed company because people like Sequoia invested. And again, this isn't a criticism of Sequoia. Like We all make mistakes. That's what makes this so interesting and so fascinating. Um, but that that's where I draw the line. So I, I have more thoughts, but I'll, I'll stop there and, and let Ellie, you respond or let John jump in. Yeah, I think those are a lot of good ones. You know, capital allocation, I didn't mention it up top, but holy cow, that's that's been an area where I think it's really uh, enlightening to hear company responses. I guess I did mention it. That was part of what uh, Mars Chang did. But, um, you know, I've been engaging more proactively with management teams that I'm involved in or thinking about get investing behind on these questions. And I've been in this environment in particular far more willing to not ask questions looking for answers, but to be explicit and share some of my own thoughts. And it's been enlightening in a lot of ways um, because, you know, there are some companies that basically ignore you. That's information in it in and of itself. There are some companies that give incredibly unsatisfactory answers, which is enlightening in its own right. And there are some that give you answers you don't necessarily agree with based on your own uh, perspective but they are incredibly thoughtful in how they give in, in, in their own answer. And that too is interesting in its own right. And you could build respect for someone who you disagree with in that sense. hundred percent. So I have to jump in real <laughs> quick because I have a, I have a story that illustrates this so well, because I think this is a really important point. Literally about an hour ago, a friend of mine called who runs another fund and, and he does, good work and in, in similar types of research. So every once in a while, we'll, we'll talk about some sort of company together. And he said, I've had the most interesting experience over the last couple of weeks getting to know company XYZ. And I said, oh, really? Why, why is that so interesting? And he said, because I knew a little bit about this related business, like a, you know, like a twin cousin of this type of business, just slightly different. But I didn't understand some of the nuances about this business. And because company A introduced me to company B, they were willing to spend like hours and hours with me on the phone, like walking me through all this nuance and really explaining things to me in a really clear, rational way. And even though I, I have my own opinions and slight disagreements with how they're doing things, I can at least understand and totally appreciate where they're coming from. And so I just had to straight up ask them, like, I run a small fund. This is a $10 billion market cap or whatever. Like, I'm never going to be, you know, a big investor of yours. Why are you willing to spend this time doing this? And, and the company's response was, well, you were introduced to us by company A, which is always a good sign. And we want to attract good shareholders like you. And we know that if we good, do a good job with you, you might tell more people about us. And that's exactly what you want to see, right? That's exactly what I think you're just describing right there. 100%. It's so interesting. And I'm dying to know the company because that's exactly the kind of company I want to like get to know yeah, better. I, I'll have to ask him if he's comfortable with me sharing it. I'm certainly not going to mention For it sure. publicly. No, I, I'll, I'll I be figured glad to put you much, guys in but, touch later. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had in my own portfolio, like on capital allocation, right? There's one company that's sitting on way too much cash and I've pushed them on repurchasing shares. And their answers every step of the way have been 
incredibly unsatisfactory. And it's really hard. And this is part of why I thought of the topic in the first place, because I'm sitting down to meet with them about this face-to-face this week. And uh, it's really hard for me because I like the business. I like what they're doing. But one of the questions I ask myself is, well, you know, they've given excuses for not repurchasing shares. But if they don't want to repurchase shares here, what business do I have even owning the stock? Because all indications are this cash is excess. It's not fundamental for the business. It's not necessary to execute their own strategy. Were it necessary to execute their strategy, they'd be far better off having repurchased shares now, you know, arguably improving the stock price and coming to market in the future for a raise if and when they had something that necessitated that degree of capital. Like there are ways to approach it. On the flip side, I had, I think, one of the most successful and I'd say um, inspiring engagements with the management team who had a similar problem. And they not just listened, they uh, doubled what I suggested them uh, as, as a prudent repurchase in this environment. They went way more aggressive and they changed their entire communication around how they think about opportunity cost and hurdle rates in executing their own business strategy and just communicated so effectively around it where I feel like, you know, given this environment, given the downturn that we're experiencing, it's the kind of company who's earned the right uh, to think of as one you'd, you'd stick around for a very long time. And I'm I'm really grappling with this contrast. Uh, you know, part of me asked like, well, you know, that one became a much bigger stock in my portfolio now, but why not sell the first company to buy even more shares of the second? Yeah, no, I, I agree. Sometimes that's the right answer. And and to your point, I mean, I, I I would refer back again to, so the the other one of the two companies I mentioned earlier has really driven me nuts at times because it's been the first or second biggest position for me for the last, six years. So we first bought shares in 2015 and uh, more or less haven't done anything. We've, we've added a few times when the share prices dipped a little bit for, for reasons, but um, we've kept it pretty much steady with inflows and just made it a huge position and sat tight. And so because I got the initial analysis correct and because you know the business has proven to be as good as I thought it was, it's, it's basically tripled over that six-year period and there have been times where I've gotten extremely frustrated because it should have gone up even more. I should have had an even higher financial return had they just had the courage to really load up on the stock instead of doing these little dinky buybacks. If they'd done one big buyback at either of the two big opportunities they had, not including COVID, I would not include that as an opportunity necessarily. You know, they, they could have taken out 20 or 25% of the shares at a really attractive price instead of. 10 or 12% of the shares at, at just a moderately attractive price. But then I have to go back to the thought that, look, if I'm really going to be a long-term shareholder, continue to be a long-term shareholder here, what really matters is the performance of the business, the return on capital, the capital is required in the business, the long-term strategy, the, the motor on the business, all these good things that we all talk about. And it's easy to forget that when the company's just kind of shooting itself in the foot. And look, I get it. The business is hard all business is difficult so we just have to kind of live with that sometimes and i you know i i try to always force myself to remember that i have to let the small things be small things and you know sometimes when not to say that in this case that this wasn't quite a small thing this was more like a medium thing but it definitely wasn't a big thing um so you just kind of have to 
bite your tongue and deal with it. And again, I've, it, it, it almost reaches the level you talked about too. Like I've sat down many, many times with the CEO. I've spoken to the several board members. Uh, I, I've gotten quite involved. There was even, there were, there were conversations even above that about joining uh, the board, which never went anywhere. They were giving me total lip service in a lot of ways. And it's frustrating. And it's indicative of the fact that this is not a perfect company. This is not a perfect scenario. And when that happens, you just have to take it in as as new pieces of information and and act accordingly. And by the way, I like the story you shared about your friend. I want to make a point here because like neither Phil nor I are huge managers. And yet we get access to these companies. And I had taken for granted earlier in my career doing this, how willing some companies are to talk. And I'd actually view it as a signal when some of these companies aren't willing to talk. But I love that story of your friend having been introduced by another management team to a different company. Because there are so many different ways that you could get in touch. And that's one of the better ones. Like the yeah. ones you speak to, you build a reputation with them. Some of those people will end up in different places later in their careers, et cetera. But you could, you know, build your own credibility and reputation in talking with these people and engaging constructively. And they're willing to open doors for you when, you know, they find you to be someone worth engaging to. And, you know, we're talking to a lot of people in the MOI community, just be just having this forum where you present ideas periodically. Um, I've found that actually some management teams at first who might be reluctant to speak with me, I've sent them my slide decks from MOI presentations. Yep. And they're like, oh, okay, you're serious and this is interesting. I've heard of MOI and I know that other people are listening to this too. Uh, I'll talk to you a little more, but um, don't be shy about it. And don't be shy so, to share your perspective. I used to be, uh, but in this downturn, I think, um, you know, my mentor has been telling me everyone becomes a little bit of a suggestivist in times like these, at the very least. Um, but, you know, I, and I'd say it's not so much, again, to reiterate the point that companies actually do or don't listen to you. It's that they are thoughtful in how they take feedback and you know, sometimes it's good enough to hear that they've even considered something as opposed to, oh, that didn't cross my mind. So I, I'd say go out, go out there and try to make some things happen. Yeah. And, and I think you hit on a really important uh, sub point there that's, that's worth reiterating, which is that I would actually view it as a bad sign if a management team or an investor relations department was just constantly talking all the time to anybody who came across the transom. It's a waste of time. The reason why this management team was willing to spend time with my friend who called with the story earlier was because they said, hey, you got in, in, you were an investor of company A. We know company A. We think highly of them. And they said you were a good investor. And then point B was you've been asking good questions, right? So it's not a waste of time. This is not how should I model this? What's the quarterly tax rate going to look like? All this kind of nonsense that sucks 90% of the air out of the room anytime an investor interacts with a company. So I, I agree. I think a, a company has to limit itself and limit the interactions it's willing to tolerate and to only those that are productive and actually in in building and engaging with a quality shareholder base and, and not just taking anybody and everybody. And now that we're in what I'd call the wake of COVID and it's largely behind us, I think asking for site visits, uh, companies are more open to those now than they were even before COVID in some ways, even from, I'd say, insignificant shareholders like ourselves. And uh, sure, there's a lot you learn from sitting down face to face with people. And that's actually been pretty inspiring to get out there again and talk to some of these uh, 
operators person to person and get a sense for what they're seeing and feeling in this environment because it is challenging but some of them have an enthusiasm and others have the opposite and i think that sort of tells a story in and of itself yep i agree 100 percent. so yeah go ahead john i was going to ask you to chime in yeah maybe i'll share just a few thoughts i think you know management's um most managements primarily see themselves as operators um, and they don't necessarily understand their um, twin role as operators and capital allocators. And even if they do, they, um, they're they rarely good at capital allocation. Uh, you know, they kind of are susceptible to the same um, problems that most market participants are, and that's kind of the fear and greed cycle. So you end up buying high and selling low, and you can see that um, in terms of how a lot of companies do share buybacks. They end up buying back their own shares, actually, when they're pretty high. And then when they're very low, the managements get scared often and and do nothing. And uh, you can observe similar uh, trend with acquisitions as well. Um, in terms of kind of should management pay attention to the market um, and kind of the changing, you know, views of the market uh, in terms of how they run the company or even do capital allocation, I would say, um, you know, not necessarily. Uh, maybe they do need to do more of that if the company needs financing from the market. So you have to be responsive. But if you don't need financing, I think um, you really should be selective about who you listen to. You know, don't just listen to the market as a whole. Listen to your you know, smart, constructive shareholders, um, kind of the quality shareholders and and only to them. Um, and then last point um, that I kind of have come to believe over the years is that um, when, when you're dealing with a commodity business, um, management is almost everything. So it's kind of impossible to say, I'll invest here because I like the business, but not sure about the management if it's a commodity business you really um without a good management team you're pretty much screwed so um you know if you have a great business you can obviously afford to um, have a management that's maybe not the the very best yeah that's a great point and i'm glad john that you pulled in my second question because i think we've spoken far more to the first uh from the introduction so how sensitive should management strategy and tactics be to stock market dynamics, right? Um, and I was thinking about this question a lot because one management team recently told me, yeah, you know, the market was incenting, incentivizing us to drive aggressively for growth the last bunch of years. I'm paraphrasing here, by the way. Uh, but they they all but said, you know, we were supposed to drive for growth because that's what the market wanted from us. And we recognize today that we need to drive for EBITDA not for revenue growth. And it's like, on the one hand, bravo for saying, you know, you want to be profitable. But on the other hand, you know, is that really the right way to approach it? Your overarching strategy should be aimed to maximize per share intrinsic value. And it should not be about whether the market's saying do this or do that. So if today the right answer would be invest, EBITDA be damned, 
then you should do that. Um, you should explain it well. You should rationalize why you're doing that, but that's what you should do. Um, and, you know, I think not enough management teams have a clear North Star for what they should be looking for. And I think, you know, increasingly that's that's a signal and that's something that I'm going to make more core to a lot of my interactions, making sure I understand that they have a North Star that's aligned with mine. Yeah, I think that's just it, is they have to have a North Star. And that's why the playbook changes, the tactics change, but the, you know, the three great principles originally laid out by Ben Graham never change. And in this case, that's why a management team has to have an investment function in the core of what it does. And it has to understand what it's trying to accomplish. And if it doesn't understand that, you have a problem. And in this case, I think you put it pretty well, Elliot, that the right decision is the right decision. If it's growing operating income at the cost of in over-investing or investing a lot of cash flow that make the operating metrics look bad, then great, do that. And that really shouldn't change a whole lot based on what's happening in the stock market or some academic calculation of the cost of equity capital or whatever. But, you know, look, it, it does change the playbook around the margins, right? Because as it was so well put, all those years ago, you have to let the market serve you and not let the tail wag the dog, right? So you can't let the market tell you too much of what you ought to be doing. You should be aware of what's happening. You should say, hey, this is expensive. This is cheap. This opportunity is here right now. This opportunity is not looking so good right now. You allow it to inform your actions for sure, but it can't inform your entire philosophy where you're just constantly pivoting from what's hot today, what opportunity can I pounce on, who can I screw, this sort of stuff, right? I mean, that, that, that's where like the SPAC boom of a year or two ago was so cynical and so silly. Like you knew that most of those deals were just deals for their own sake, right? They were not based on some sort of deep underlying strategy or philosophy or anything long-term productive and healthy. And sure enough, that's why most of them have failed miserably. Yeah, it's an interesting point because I think the SPAC boom is part of the problem for some of the companies who were appropriately optimizing for growth and not profitability, where when you have um, a couple companies doing it, that's fine and well. But when you have a couple hundred companies doing it, it's really hard to separate the real from the fake, right? The ones who earn the right and deserve to be able to do so from the pretenders. And it makes it hard for investors to sift through whether, you know, this company is genuine in that or that one's not. <laughs> and, um, you know, definitely dealing with the comeuppance of that right now. I think that's part of why this company was saying, hey, we're optimizing for EBITDA now because, you know, they don't want to be lumped in with the pretenders and they believe they could actually do it. Um, so they want to show it. And I think there's a degree to which that's good. I like the modest proposal tweet. I think I mentioned it a few times on here that even Amazon along the way of uh, investing for decades showed a little leg with respect to profitability. Like every once in a while, they'd be like, hey, you know, this is how much we could earn right now if we tried to earn some money. Um, but it still does create problems. Yeah, I I don't know. I have a slightly different take on the the Amazon example, which I, I get it and I agree with the point I think you're trying to make. But my response would be that, you know, showing a little leg or whatever is like, that's true and cute, I guess. But the, the numbers were always there, right? And the Amazon strategy and philosophy never really changed. And anybody who had an IQ over 50 and really understood 
what the company was trying to do didn't need them to show a little leg, right? And so look, uh, people can disagree about whether there was the right strategy, the wrong strategy, whether the valuation ever made sense. I mean, Lord knows we all wish we would have just loaded up on Amazon stock years and years ago. And that was obviously, you know, the right move in hindsight. But the point is, as you go along, like, I don't know that Amazon ever needed to do anything to show a little like to justify itself or its standing in the market. Like, I would argue that they were always going to have volatility in the share price. They were always going to have volatility in the operating results. They were always going to have investors getting all worked up over nothing, basically. And so what? Like, just ride it out. Like, if you're doing a killer job in the business, as Amazon obviously was for all those years, let the scoreboard do the talking, right? Yeah, although they had a lot of skepticism. I don't know. It wasn't that easy. it was oh, there, they, but they, I think that, a they lot did. Of people... But that's that's my point, though. So, like by by, so let's say that if by showing a little leg, you or the the tweet that you mentioned is saying that like they would change things just slightly to show a little bit of profitability or whatever, what did, what did that get them, right? Because if they still got to the same end place, right, the same business result, who cares if it was a little rocky along the way? It was going to be rocky either way. And so by like showing a little profitability or like assuaging investors' fears along the way, they weren't raising capital. Like they weren't some sort of... You I'd know, say their stock scheme. was less volatile than similar kind of growth companies from 2012 through 2020 if you right, will right so my point is even if that's true which i don't i don't know if it is or it isn't but like so what like they weren't they weren't using that funding to their they didn't need the funding so who cares right and even if they do need the funding like volatility is just a fact of life like i wouldn't invite excess volatility but so like what i think I it think, got them was more benefit of the doubt during the other side of the lumps like when things weren't as good, I'd always be like, you know, any other stock other than Amazon that missed earnings by that amount would be down like three or four times as much along the way. Right. But then again, my my next question becomes, so what? Like, what was that? Why does that matter to the business? I think there's a reflexivity where an extremely volatile stock, um, a high degree of investor turnover and skepticism could become unhealthy and destabilizing for a company if the environment uh, doesn't improve quickly. Well, I, again, I would agree if if there's a reflexivity element that matters, right? If there's like, if you need to go back to those investors to raise more capital, if you really think none of your investors are going to stick around, you're going to have a crazy amount of volatility and turnover. But that's not the case for the vast, vast majority of companies. It certainly wasn't the case for Amazon by, you know. 2005 well, or part of the reflexivity that matters is uh stock based comp for employees right so you get better right. employee retention you get better well, uh, that's a good point and that gets that gets back to what we talked about that was probably what likewise a year ago i would think <laughs> about the double edged sword of stock based comp and you know it's just another thing that i think amazon got more right than its peers was they were never overly reliant on paying hordes of people, crazy amounts of stock-based comp and expecting everything to just go one direction, which is up. So yeah, yeah. That, that I agree. There's some serious reflexivity in needing the capital markets to fund your business or needing the equity market to fund your compensation to your people. There, I totally agree. But in the case of Amazon, I just don't think it ever really mattered because I think they did it the right way and they did it sustainably and soundly the whole way along. 
It's an interesting point. I, I will have to meditate on that a little bit. Um, I think there's something to be said about good stock performance over a very long time with lower volatility. Um, there seems to be something, some sort of magic to those kinds of companies that could temper the volatility of their stock with uh, having a certain caliber of investor base who who expects to be there through thick or thin. Well, look, I you know I can't think of a company that was you know let's say from 1970 onward more financially robust and more well-structured to ride out the ups and downs of the stock market than Berkshire Hathaway. And yet it had, what, at least three declines of 50 or 60% from the trough. And so what, right? Like it doesn't matter. And there's probably nothing they could have done to avoid those ups and downs. It just is what it is. I mean, he Buffett himself has been completely written off at a couple of different junctures, right? I mean, it didn't, didn't end up mattering at all. But he did put a lot of care into curating a uh what lack 100% of, a, a good shareholder, shareholder base. base. Yeah, 100% and so did Bezos at Amazon, right? I mean, he was very explicit in the way he communicated and the way he didn't communicate and I think it made all the difference in the world. So that's where I don't know that like showing a little leg or whatever was really a intended strategy or if it was if it was a necessary or useful strategy. Yeah, I think that was part of that communication. Like, hey, you know, when we want to, we can. And this is the proof that that's there. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe another point is, um, you know, whether a company is really active in terms of buying back or issuing equity. And if it's not, then I would say, you know, it's nice to have a smooth stock price chart over the long term hopefully up and to the right but what you know if it is fairly smooth and you're never going to get there but you know to Elliot's point um it's something that's better than than not uh simply because it promotes fairness uh between exiting and entering shareholders um, because the intrinsic value of the business probably doesn't fluctuate in such huge ways. Now, if a company is actually active in terms of share issuance and, and buybacks, and they can do a good job at it, then you want tons of volatility. And the best example is Henry Singleton, right? I mean, if Teledyne stock hadn't been um, as volatile he wouldn't have been able to create nearly as much shareholder value over time. And so I think it it kind of depends on whether management is taking advantage of the volatility or not. Um, you know, and I think Berkshire kind of has, or Buffett has communicated about this point of fairness as well, um, you know, kind of exiting and entering shareholders and, and things like that. But again, feel good ex- good example because... If you if you would guess kind of just blindly a stock that maybe doesn't have as much volatility, a lot of people would say Berkshire, but that wouldn't be true. Yeah, I mean, and and I would actually I, I should go back and see if I'm correct about this, but I would guess that if we took all the companies in the outsiders, right, which I just to arbitrarily select a, a group of companies that don't have much in common other than their shared ethos of 
capital allocation and non-conformity and you know that kind of stuff. I don't think a single one of them ever took any actions where the stock market was the tail wagging the dog or where they were trying to dampen volatility or anything like that. Like you said, at the one extreme, you had people like Henry Singleton who were almost playing the volatility and using it to their advantage. And to a certain extent, I suppose they all did that, but he was a pretty extreme example of it. But I, I just think it's a slippery slope where you know, that, that, that would be one for me where like, look, reasonable people can disagree about how much stock to buy back or when. Reasonable people can even disagree about the right dividend policy, even though that's way more obvious and shouldn't be nearly as hard as a lot of companies like to make it. But if a company's out there trying to like artificially depress the volatility of their stock price, that would probably cross the red line for me. Like that's just not productive behavior and it's indicative of, you know, a, a systemic problem, I think, in the way they approach their their business and, and their shareholders. Yeah, it's the guy in the preface to the outsiders, right? Everyone was benchmarked against Jack Welch, the cookie well, jar accounting. That's a good example of it, right? I mean, you know, I there's a lot of examples to draw from GE and Jack. A modern Wilson. singleton kind of example. It was actually an interesting conversation I had with a friend earlier this week. Would be the semi cap companies. You know, my friend was musing. Every single one of these businesses is a virtual monopoly, and you know, over very long stretches of time, what their demand will look like. But it's incredibly cyclical over shorter periods of time. And those companies have been pretty aggressive repurchasers when uh, the down cycles have come about. Which companies? Sorry, I didn't catch that. The semi-cap equipment companies. Oh, okay. All right. Like KLAC, LRCX. Yeah, yeah I can't. I don't know enough about them to, to speak Amon. in detail. I don't know them sense. especially yeah. well. I've been reading Chip Wars, so I've been thinking a lot about the semis just in general. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but yeah, I'd recommend that book, by the way. <laughs> Very, yeah, very no, that's, interesting. that sounds interesting. It's it's pretty relevant to today, right? With the dominance of companies like Taiwan Semiconductor. Yep. Yep. So um, you know, I I I generally agree, but I I think communication is the real only lever that management has to pull to kind of curate the right kind of shareholder oh, yeah. base. I marvel at a stock like Thermo Fisher, where it's just been so damn consistent for a decade since they kind of came together and went about the strategy. Um, it, it does wonders for building a, a stable shareholder base and kind of uh, letting you get benefit of the doubt even when some numbers aren't going exactly right. Um, yep, for sure. Yep. The last thing that I, I would say is I want to just reiterate too uh, what you said, Elliot, which is that you know I think there's this notion that you either have to be Dan Loeb writing flaming letters on the internet and screaming and pulling hair or you have to be some sort of professional activist who's you know doing this sort of hand to hand combat every day uh to be engaged with management and i just or you have to be a big shareholder for that matter right i think we've dispelled or you a lot have to those. sell if you don't like what management's doing <laughs> well or that true right yeah which again like you know like i said i mean my first or second biggest holding over the last 6 years has been this company where i love the business i love everything the management team is doing operationally. I just disagree uh, around what they could have done and should be doing today on the capital allocation side. So it is what it is. But I still think they've benefited and I've certainly benefited from the back and forth dialogue we've had, which has been productive. It's been professional and collegial and and done in a way where I would be glad to do it all over again. And it's all above board. Again, this doesn't 
you know, I think people have a lot of misunderstandings as to how that sort of communication should be done. And and just because I own, you know, far less than one percent of the stock doesn't mean that if I have something constructive and positive and 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 conducive to their operations to say we should all be on the same team in that regard. And if they're nasty or if they completely blow me off or whatever, that would probably cross the the, the red line for me. Yeah. There's a lot of information, even in disagreement. A hundred percent. There's more information in disagreement with this type of stuff than in agreement. So maybe just to finish it up, I'd be curious how you guys would would sum up your kind of position when it comes to investing in companies um, where you know you're not totally high on the management um, you know what wh- what does that trade-off look like I mean we've been talking about that this whole podcast but can you sum it up um, in any way I would sum it up I'll, I'll go first because my list is probably shorter I would just sum it up by saying that I have a list and it's not a, a a firm checklist but it's a list of things where I'm just not willing to compromise and it's the things that I listed earlier right any sort of ethical gray areas any sort of really significant character issues at the top leadership you know really egregious risk taking in terms of balance sheets M&A uh any sort of signs of cultural rot any signs of conflicts of interest you know, big stuff like that, which other people might be willing to dismiss and I'm just not. But it, to, to me, that's all a big deal and not something that can be ignored. And everything else, it's a degree of how much do I have to just hold my nose and deal with it? I want two things. I'll keep my list brief as well. I want to make sure, and and I think I got away from this a little bit at times. I want to make sure that companies have an appropriate North Star and it's consistent with how I think about their opportunity as well. Without that, I think I've gotten into problems and I've seen companies get into problems as well. So the North Star has to be consistent. It can't be contextual. It has to be why, why they exist and what they do every single day. And the second thing is, I think, Communication needs to be open, honest, candid, and thoughtful. Um, the more robust conversation, you know, some management teams are very hand wavy when they get asked tough questions. And I don't, I really don't like that. I don't think that does anyone a service. And I think even a management team that's executed really well for a long period of time, you know, some might say they have the right to do that. I don't think so. I think they have uh, obligation to engage in thoughtful communication with their shareholders. And that doesn't just mean, you know, speaking uh in an IR context, it means through their quarterly calls. Like it could be as simple as making sure that they have very thoughtful answers to tough questions. So um those are the two things that I think are most important to me. Um so if, if I think they're being honest, I think they're thoughtful and I agree uh that they have an appropriate North Star, then I'm going to be willing to hang around even if I don't entirely agree with the strategy and tactics they're taking. Yeah, and I will maybe just say, um, you know, for me, a management has to at least be trying to do right by the shareholders. Now, they may not be doing all the right things, but uh, where I've made uh, my biggest mistakes is when management literally isn't even trying to do right by the shareholders. And so what uh, ended up happening um, in numerous cases was that you know, the stock would go down and they do a dilutive 
equity raise or something like that that may have been unnecessary, but it kind of solidified their position and gave them more money to play with, but was totally and blatantly against the interests of existing shareholders. Um, so that's kind of where I would draw the line. Well, thank you so much, uh, Phil and Elliot. Uh, another great discussion. And thank you as well for listening. We will be back with another episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.